Welcome to Twill, the Wheaton Health Law, the Arctic Bomb Cyclone podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on January 10th, 2018. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined, of course, by my co-host and our very own very stable genius, Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland in Baltimore, Maryland. Well, Frank, first of all, a big thank you to a new patron, R-C-A-C-K-E-R-M-A-N. Welcome aboard. Big thanks. Um, you guys are making a big difference. So uh, keep on doing what you're doing. Where have you been, Frank? I've been holed up in the uh, the the freezing Midwest. You you went west, didn't you? I did. And I had a great time on a panel for the ALS health law section with Rikaya Yerby and uh, David Hyman. And we were discussing the future of uh, health reform in the Trump years uh, and really want to thank the audience for coming out. I did some uh, plugs of Twill, including our earlier work on waivers. Uh, so that was fun. Were there, were there rousing cheers from the audience when you mentioned Twill? Oh, yes. Oh, <laughs> well, actually, they sort of rolled their eyes because everybody was already listening. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> there we and, go. And how about you, Nick? How was your uh, your uh, Christmas uh, New Year's? Oh, grading in Grant's hell. Um, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Okay. <laughs> this week, big greeting to a new guest, Paul Osterman, the NTU Professor of Human Resources and Management at the MIT Sloan School of Management. He's also a member of MIT's Department of Urban Planning. His research uh, concerns uh, changes in work organization within companies, uh, career patterns and processes within firms, economic development, urban poverty, and public policy surrounding skills training and employment programs. He's a, an economist, uh, a prolific scholar, and his most recent book, and what we'll be discussing today, is Who Will Care For Us? Long-Term Care and the Long-Term Workforce. Um, we'll put a link in that to the show notes so you can go out and buy the book. Paul, big welcome to the pod. Thank you. The core thesis, as I read it, quote, expanding the role of direct care workers will save the system money, both by obtaining better health outcomes and by shifting some tasks to lower paid occupations. Before we get into the details of that, in chapter two and chapter three of the book, you had a fascinating sketch of who we talking about, who these people are, how many of them are, how much they're getting paid and by whom and so on. And I think it might be a good place to start to sort of ground the discussion. If you could give us kind of a thumbnail sketch as to uh, exactly who we're talking about. Again, thank you. Thank you for having me, both of you. I, I really do uh, appreciate it. I, I should say just to begin that I got, I got initially into this project because of my work on low-wage labor markets and my broader set of interests about low-wage jobs. And, and how to make them better. And I knew that there were millions of people in these home care jobs who get paid poorly. So I thought, oh, okay, I'm interested in low-wage labor markets. I'll look at these folks. I, I came into it with no background at all in the kind of mechanics and the structure of long-term care. As I got into it, I guess two things happened. One, one is that I realized that you can't really think about how to improve these jobs without understanding the larger system in which the jobs are embedded. And then the second thing that happened was I got really interested in the system. Uh, as well, I'm sure we'll talk about it. It's a bizarre and Baroque system. It's not anything like uh, what you design if you were starting from scratch. Uh, but it is a, it is what we've got. And it's it's quite complex and it's quite interesting. And I also really enjoy talking to all the folks who are involved. It turns out that I do a lot of interviewing in other industries. And sometimes I'm greeted in a friendly
friendly way and sometimes I'm not. In healthcare, everyone was friendly. People really are nice folks and they care about what they're doing. In terms of who these people are, there's there's a roughly, and it's complicated getting these numbers, I should say. It's quite surprising that it's complicated. But today, there's roughly about 2 million home healthcare aides. And, and, and there's about, roughly speaking, about a million and a half or so uh, certified nursing assistants who work in nursing homes and assisted living settings. They're about 90% women. They're disproportionately immigrants. Uh, nationally, the home health aides are about 27% immigrants. But in some places, New York, they're two-thirds immigrants. They're disproportionately people of color. Uh, and they earn terrible wages. So so nationally, for home health aides, the average wage is in roughly $10 an hour. For certified nursing assistants who are working in nursing homes, it's more like 11 or $12 an hour. Those are both poverty-level wages. And the work is very difficult, as you can imagine. Home health aides are isolated in homes. Nursing assistants are in nursing homes. But there's a, in both cases, there's a lot of physical work. There's a lot of emotional stress and so on. So that's, that's, that's kind of the basic picture. And then the question is, you know, what's going on? Why is it like that? What what you can do about it? And I'm guessing some of the issues that you discuss are being exacerbated by some of the shifts in immigration policy. I think I read somewhere that there was a, a very large number of dreamers, for example, who were employed in, in, in this space. The future is is troubling because there's going to, as the baby boom ages, and, and, you know, I'm sure I can't see you guys, so I actually don't know <laughs> how old you are. Oh, Frank, Frank's, a, Frank's a mere child. Let's yeah, so, 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 so let's say hypothetically you're in the baby boom generation. Just, just, just let's, let's, let's make a wild guess about that. Everyone in the baby boom generation except me is going to get older and it's going to need, I'm not going to get older. I'm, I'm going to be Peter Pan myself. Uh, but seriously, what's going to happen is that there's going to be shortages in the future and, and the immigration changes are going to be a real challenge going forward. So, so absolutely. Uh, that that's a that's a serious issue. Now I want to move us into something that is the, the one of the hottest policy issues right now with re, with respect to not only the healthcare workforce but workforce uh, preparedness and competition in general, which is licensing. And I think that and I, I want to try to frame one of the arguments in your book and see if you think I've got it or maybe this is not the the whole story. Which is it seems that in most areas we have a real movement to reduce occupational licensing requirements in order to increase competition and reduce the type of pay that consumers have to pay for services. However, um, your overview of many of the home health aides, the CNAs, other folks in this uh, home health uh, landscape or uh, long-term care, elder care landscape, you suggest that they ought to actually have more training so that they can do more complicated tasks. And the key idea here seems to be that it's win-win-win because it will both be more satisfying work for the people working in these settings, the home health settings, it will um, free the higher level healthcare workers to do higher level work that so they can work at the top of their license and will save money overall. Is that the, the general idea here? Yeah, so that is the general idea. So so rolling backwards in, in your comment, home health aides are not licensed. The two subcategories of home health aides that I mentioned that they exist, one is something called home health aides, which are certified to work in settings that can take Medicare reimbursement. And those folks need to have 75 hours of training minimum. That's like nothing. Uh, the other category of home health aides are called personal care assistants, and they can't be reimbursed under Medicare. They can be reimbursed under Medicaid. 
The first group can also be reimbursed under private insurance. Uh, their, their training requirements are controlled by the states, and they vary widely from zero to 75 hours, basically. CNAs need to be need to have this r- roughly 75 hours of training, or even a little more. But those aren't licenses in the kind of classic sense that a nurse's license. The real issue with respect to home health care is scope of practice rules, or put differently, nurse delegation laws, which are state by state. And those tend to limit certain activities, even basically minimal activities, to nurses. And home health aides can't do them. And so a core argument of the book is to loosen that. Many people get home care just by hiring someone off the street or through an aid, through a registry or through a website or through a network. There's no scope of practice there. If I hire you and I pay out of my pocket, you can do anything you want that I'm willing to let you do. That's, you know, significant, but that's not uh, reimbursed under Medicaid or Medicare or private insurance. Private insurance is where these, or Medicaid, Medicare is where these scope of practice limitations fall. There is a sub-flavor of Medicaid called consumer directed, which is largely directed towards the disability community, but some elder folks, younger disability community, in which the client hires and supervises the aid themselves. Scope of practice does not apply there. And the evidence around health outcomes and consumer directed, where there's no scope of practice and aides can do anything the client wants, is that those clients do just as well as they do under the typical agency model. So everything in the system is complicated, layered, baroque, bizarre, and I've tried to explain it clearly, but probably everybody's confused now. Yes, uh, I think that there it is an incredibly complicated landscape, but I want to thank you, Paul, for all of the work that you've done in terms of uh, really trying to typologize it and I think succeeding, not only in the text, but in the appendices to develop a very rigorous uh, approach to the typology of these different uh, laborers in the healthcare workforce and also the different levels of disability that they're dealing with. I guess my question at this point, and here I just want to ask you to describe one of the most moving stories in your book and how your policy proposals could get us closer to enabling this to happen more generally or happening in a better way. And that was the story of Mark, who I believe was an an assistant for a, a blind man in his 80s who had serious wound issues. And I'm wondering if you could tell the story of that aid and why current laws uh, and what what sort of standing in the way of more type of care like the care that he offered and how your proposals could could sort of enable uh, more stories like that. That that's a story about about an aide working with a disabled man. Uh, there are a couple of layers to that story. Uh, one, one layer to that story is that this aide put his own private time when he wasn't being reimbursed into taking care of this person. Uh, he cared so much about him. Now that's not necessarily typical, but I did find when I interviewed a lot of aides that their kind of commitment to their client and their kind of emotional commitment to helping their client was was remarkable. Uh, but Mark would go to the hospital when his when his client was in the hospital and try to explain to the folks in the hospital uh, what was going on with his client. And the folks in the hospital assumed that there was some kind of intellectual disability, that the client was not responsive. And Mark had a different view. He, he His view was the client had hard of, was difficult of hearing, and that was part of the problem. There was also an issue about how you handle bandages. And Mark had had a, because if, if the client had skin issues, and Mark tried to explain to the hospital staff the best way to manage bandages for this person. And the hospital staff basically 
basically dismissed him. Now, these are stories that are not so much about the scope of practice argument, and we can come to examples of the scope of practice argument. Those are stories first about the commitment of this aid to the the client, but also about the kind of cultural attitudes that other people in the healthcare system have towards the aids, namely that they're stupid, they're incompetent, they're not really part of the healthcare team, they had very very little to offer. Mark happened to be a white man, but those, those kind of cultural attitudes are intensified by the fact that a lot of these aides are women and people of color or immigrants. And so there's different levels of problems here. One, one level is the scope of practice, nurse delegation stuff, which we can talk about. But the other problem is how you kind of really make, give these people some level of respect in the context of a healthcare team and take advantage of what they have to offer. And that's really what that story was about. And it, like many other stories in the book, are, are most compelling. Again, just to sort of um, cite some of our discussion, um, given the, the the listeners that we have, we should briefly talk about Medicare and Medicaid. Obviously, Medicare Part A does have uh, the limited skilled nursing home coverage, but that's not really the kind of story you're telling. So primarily, we're talking about Medicaid uh, with regard to nursing homes and also home health. Yet, before we get into some of the problems that you identified in Medicaid, there was an interesting statement you made in the book of what you call misaligned incentives between Medicare and Medicaid with regard to this problem. Do you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, sure. L- l- let me, though, say this about, uh, that sounds like Richard Nixon. Let me say this about that. <laughs> let me say this. Let me say this about Medicare. The conventional wisdom is that Medicare is not part of the long-term care system because it doesn't pay for real long-term care if I need, if I'm disabled and I need two years of care. Right. But from the point of view of a, of a client, what Medicare does pay for is up to 100 days of either time in a skilled nursing home, but also home health aides after an acute episode. So I leave a hospital and I need some some aid, help at home with an aide. Medicare will cover that if a doctor uh, signs a script for it. And from the point of view of a client, that looks a little bit like long-term care because you're getting someone for up to 100 days. And you can do this for multiple episodes of uh, multiple acute episodes. And in fact, if you look at the data, quite a few aides are reimbursed by Medicare. Not as many as Medicaid, but it's not, it is part of the system. It is part of the system. The other thing to be said, and this, we can talk about this at whatever point you want in terms of incentive structures and financing. Uh, There's a lot of attention to the role of Medicaid because Medicaid pays for a lot of long-term care. But as I'm sure you know, and as I'm sure your listeners know, getting into Medicaid is a complicated issue. My estimates, actually estimates I've made subsequent to the book, are that roughly 40% of AIDS are reimbursed via Medicaid or Medicare. The rest are either out of pocket or less importantly, private insurance. So Medicaid, Medicare are the single biggest kind of payers in the system, but they're not the only payers in the system. And that's important to understand when it comes to thinking about how to make this job better. Now, of course, I've forgotten your question. What was the question? You you specifically early in the book, even before you talked about the sort of characteristics of Medicaid that, as you said, were important 
the story. You actually said there were misaligned incentives oh, yes, between yes. Medicare and Medicaid, and I was I was wondering if yeah. you could flesh that out a little. Yeah. Bit. So so this goes to the question of what's the win-win solution here. Let's say hypothetically that you could get these aides to do a lot more, ease scope of practice, and also provide the training so they're capable of doing more. In whose interest is this? Well, you you definitely should be in the interest of private insurance companies and should be interest in the interest of Medicaid because it would save Medicaid and those insurance companies money. So if, for example, a better trained aide was able to enable people to stay at home instead of going to a skilled nursing facility. By and large, however, as the system is now structured, it doesn't save Medicare money. Why would a Medicaid administrator go to this trouble to save Medicare money if none of that savings in Medicare money goes back into the Medicaid system? That's what's what's going on. So go to to your state Medicaid administrator and say, do X. You're going to save money on emergency room visits. You're going to save money on doctors. And that person may say, well, why should I do X and save the Medicare system money? Medicare and Medicaid are not integrated in any way. Now, there's some demonstrations out there to integrate Medicaid and Medicare so that the two systems do have a common set of incentives. But those demonstrations are quite small and are very difficult to manage because you can't compel people to integrate into Medicaid and Medicare. Medicare law doesn't enable you to compel it. So that's where the problem is. Now, that's still, though, you can still save the Medicaid system money. You can still save private insurance companies money by by easing scope of practice. And we can talk about that. We should talk about that. But as things stand now, you're not. there's no incentive for those players to want to save Medicare any money because they don't benefit from that. Yeah, this question of, and I know that the term cost shift hydraulic is usually used in another way, but it seems like it's happening here as well, or at least whenever you squeeze the balloon on one side, it gets bigger on another. And I was wondering if you could elaborate uh, on just another example that you mentioned in the book, which was that in some Medicaid-managed care, because emergency care is not included as part of the capitation or part of the, however the, the money is allocated, there is this very perverse incentive of the people running the medi- some mad- Medicaid-managed care groups to you know pack people off to the emergency room whenever things get a little bit complicated because they're not going to be on the hook for that. It's going to be some el- some other payer. And you know you you made some really interesting points. I think about the need to align the incentives right in the reimbursement system. Yeah, let me let me roll backwards just a little bit. So so the, let, let's let's first start off by talking about the scope of practice things. So let's say the aides could do more, and you train them to do more. The savings in the system from that but come from, first off, fewer hours of more expensive nurses. Secondly, fewer transitions from home into nursing homes because if people can do better at home, they don't have to go into a nursing home. Third, fewer 911 calls to ship people to emergency rooms when something happens because first, there'll be fewer acute incidents that require emergency rooms. And secondly, the aides are better able to, to manage certain sets of problems without the 911 call. Uh, and this is not to mention just better quality of life for the clients and better treatment of kind of long-term chronic conditions. So for example, if AIDS were able were trained to be able to help people with diets and exercise, that would improve outcomes for diabetics, for example. Or if AIDS were trained to help with physical therapy exercises, that would improve people's outcomes. So those are all the channels through which this kind of scope of practice and better training will save the system money. Then the question becomes, okay, in whose interest is this to, to make these investments 
in these aids? Well, in private insurance companies, the providing long-term care insurance should have it in their interest because they're going to save money. They're fundamentally capitated, inherently capitated. And Medicaid agencies should be interested because the cost per client will be less. And if the, and increasingly, Medicaid is moving for long-term care from fee-from-service into managed care. So those insurance companies are doing managed long-term care for Medicaid should find this story in their interest. So those are incentives which are well aligned. It's the other issue that's kind of Medicare that we talked about earlier. Until you integrate Medicare into Medicaid, Medicaid doesn't really have any interest in saving Medicare system money. But that's only part of the story. I mean, Medicaid still should want to save itself money and, and private insurance should still want to save itself money. So the incentives are still there. They're just not as strong as you would like them to be. Isn't there also a, a timing issue here? You refer at the beginning of, of one chapter to the stereotypes that uh, surround these folks as being, quote, minimum wage people, someone um, you interviewed uh, retorted. Short term, aren't these payers benefiting, uh, and indeed the long-term care industry, benefiting from this minimum wage uh, structure such that it's hard to get them to be forward-looking and persuade them they're going going to save money uh, by moving away from that uh, stereotype and that reimbursement model uh, to something that is more holistic in the future. Yes, I think you're absolutely right about that. Uh, there's kind of two things that are going on there. One is it's hard to change people's attitudes. Uh, and, and then uh, the second thing that's going on is the structure of reimbursement currently is Medicaid is reimbursement to agencies are quite low. And so these agencies have no margin to increase AIDS compensation nor to invest more in training. So it's hard to move the system. It's hard for... So I think the kind of incentive structure is that you can't really go to the agencies and ask them to kind of go down this road. They don't, by and large, have the margin to do so. Private pay does have the margin, but but Medicaid agencies don't. You've got to ask the insurance companies in the Medicaid system to, to be more forward-looking. That's where the power is in the system, and that's where actually the self-interest is in the system to kind of be more forward-looking. And then again, kind of previewing our discussion of the future, uh, consumers are going to want to have these changes, both because the quality of their life would improve, but also because there's going to be radical shortages of home health aids in the future unless something uh, changes. So let's move on to a vision for the future of uh, home health care. I'm wondering what you, if you could summarize sort of the three key reforms, um, or more or less, um, which could get us there, and also give us a sense of whether you think they are on anybody's agenda and responsibility in Washington right now, or if we're going to have to wait for another administration to uh, move forward? <laughs> well, on that, on that latter question, I guess what I'm going to do is to punt by telling you, oh, I'm not a political scientist, so I'm not going to comment on the current <laughs> the, the current administration. Uh, for shame, for shame. I, I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. You know, there's so much. Uh, the, the Affordable Care Act included some small demonstration programs around on these issues, and but nothing really happened. And, he, and to, truth be told, uh, the Obama administration, with respect to improving the scope of practice for AIDS and 
any of the stuff we're talking about wasn't particularly great either. Uh, what the Obama administration did do, which was a good thing, a very good thing, was to extend the Fair Labor Standards Act to include home care aides who, were, who previously had been treated as babysitters, literally as babysitters, and exempted from the home uh, from the Fair Labor Standards Act. So in that sense, the Obama administration was progressive. And I think there's reason to fear that the current administration will try and undo that change. But outside of that, you know, I, the, the Obama administration, as I say, the Affordable Care Act included a few demonstrations, but small scale. And they didn't really focus on the role of AIDS. I mean, I did a, a number of interviews with senior officials in, in the Obama administration, and they were pretty ignorant about the role of AIDS too. Uh, it's it's a broader, broader problem. Uh, the two key reforms, I think, are to reconceive the role of AIDS as part of the healthcare team and to ease scope of practice to enable them to do that, to play that role, and then to provide the training to enable them to play that role. Uh, that's what has to happen. Now, I don't want to pretend to be, I don't want to be naive. Uh, 100% of AIDS are not interested or capable of this broader uh, role. I think, you know, we need to recognize that fact, but many are. And if we want to attract younger people into this profession who want to see this as kind of a step on a healthcare career, we need to we need to rethink the system. So those are the two big uh, steps that I think that I think are needed. You could also talk about issues such as in increasing the minimum wage more generally, the fight for 15 and so on to raise compensation. Uh, the challenge there, and I'm, I'm supportive of this, I'm supportive of the fight for 15 and I'm supportive of raising the minimum wage. The, the tricky thing in, in the context of this industry is that if you raise through fiat five for 15 minimum wage wages, uh, you know, you use this example of you squeeze on a balloon and it pops out somewhere else. What happens will, what will happen is absent any other changes, uh, the Medicaid system will find a way to reduce hours to save money. Uh, for people, save money for the system. So that that's kind of their response to raising the minimum wage. Uh, it's not an unlimited response because advocates will try and constrain their ability to, to reduce hours. And, and in principle, they're supposed to make assessments of clients and respond to their needs appropriately, but there will be a reduction in hours. Uh, that's not true necessarily in the private pay world. And the private pay world is quite big if you raise, because the private pay world has to attract clients. And if a client says, I want 20 hours, they give it to them. So there, there's going to be scope for raising wages uh, in response to minimum wage increases. But in terms of the system itself, it's really incorporating aids into the healthcare team, giving them more roles to play, and providing the training to enable them to do that. Paul, where do you see, if at all, quality and safety regulation fitting into this picture? Part of the frame from the, for the book is you talk about the, the much broader, deeper regulation of traditional nursing home long-term care and so on compared to home health. But we also have seen, or we're in the middle of deregulation uh, of, or partial deregulation of nursing homes. We, uh, the, the industry is a very good lobbyist, has very good lobbyists, and the Trump administration is cutting back on direct regulation. And we also, of course, have the current furor over the mandatory arbitration provisions that were banned by uh, the Obama administration but are now being uh, likely to be reintroduced by the Trump administration. Are there barriers to your future framework that are being helped 
or impeded by these kinds of regulatory issues or even regulatory churn? So home health is very lightly regulated, particularly compared to, to nursing homes. In most states, agencies have to be licensed, but the license requirements are weak and little to zero regulation in terms of outcomes for clients or, or treatment of clients. Uh, the Obama administration did initiate a quality, new quality ideas for home health care. And if you read their material, they're remarkably silent about the role of AIDS. Again, AIDS were fundamentally ignored. Whereas you might think, you know, an important component of quality is a skilled aide with a certain level of training who can do a number of things. But that just wasn't part of the, of the, of the package. In the abstract, I view quality regulations as another lever that public policymakers can use to, to expand the scope of practice and improve the jobs of AIDS on the argument that that improves the outcomes for clients. So I, I think of quality is a potential policy lever. Whether this administration will pay any attention to that or whether the kind of deregulatory ideology will dominate, again, I'm going to punt. I'm, a, I'm not a political scientist. But, but I do see quality as potentially a lever in the system. And in terms of some other areas for hope, one thing I'm wondering about, and I mean, please feel free to answer this question either directly or just to, to also punt on it, but uh, I, I'm wondering if there are either, given my my reading of uh, Nick's great work on artificial intelligence and healthcare and, you know, the following health tech on, on Twitter and other venues, I'm first wondering if you think there's any big technological leaps forward that may help to improve the landscape here, both for for labor and for those uh, in need of care. And second, I'm wondering if there's any other country that seems to do it better than we do. I know you give many examples in the book of uh, approaches to care that are sort of either pilot programs or they're localized, um, like the one that was in the San Francisco, uh, et cetera. But I, I'm just wondering if there might be either tech on the horizon or comparative models on the horizon that might help us uh, get to a better place. Yeah. So first on technology, I think there's a lot of small technological things that are actually underway or potentially underway that can improve quality of life and improve care. So, for example, training aides to use iPads so they could communicate with nurses and doctors. So, for example, refrigerators that are smart or even beds that are smart so that they can pick up people's sleep patterns or pick up other kinds of symptoms. So, I think there's kind of a, there's a lot of technology around improving life in people's homes that, that improve the process of getting older, the, the trajectory of getting older. So yes, will these will this technology, the bigger question is, does this technology likely to eliminate the need for AIDS? That is to say, if I'm telling you, and, and I sh we have to re be sure we return to this question, if I'm telling you there's going to be big shortages of AIDS unless something happens, is technology a potential solution? Will it reduce the need for AIDS? And I think the answer to that is no. And I think there's no, there's just no evidence that's true. And uh, the kind of one meta study that the Corcoran Collaborative did on this about a decade ago supports this view that that's not that outcome is not likely. So yes, technology will make things better in the home. No, technology will not eliminate the need for AIDS. So that's on the, that's on the technology. A weakness in the book. It's not an accidental weakness. It was a purpose of weakness. Is that I don't look at other countries, and the reason for that is twofold. Uh, one is that the kind of structure of the system in other countries is just very different. This kind of 
bizarre Medicaid, Medicare, private pay insurance system that we have. Uh, decentralization to every state having its own set of policies, consumer directed, non-consumer directed, and so on. That's just not replicated overseas. And so the institutional system is very different. And secondly, my, my kind of experience when I've talked in other parts of my research career, when I talk about, oh, they do it better in Germany, you should look at what they do in France, people just turn off. They don't, they're not compelled by that argument. In fact, many people find it offensive or uninteresting. And so I decided not to do that uh, in this book. Of course, that leaves me open to the question of, do they do it better somewhere else? And I haven't done the work to answer that question. I don't have the just casual conversation with other experts. I don't have the impression they do it better anywhere else, but I can't really, I'm not an expert on that. I, I, I'm going to punt on that question too. Just to uh, to finish up, Paul, I mean, I, I think one of the, the things I liked most about the book was that you really didn't punt on a lot of things. You really did have ideas and uh, frameworks to move us forward. But I, I would like to sort of finish on a downer question. Clearly, you are dealing with what we would call a wicked problem in, in trying to fix this. But isn't one of the properties of wicked problems that they're actually another problem? And I mean, for example, Bloomberg had a story this week about NICU babies who can't go home because there aren't home health workers who can care for them. Much of what we've talked about today has been about the critical fragmentation of our healthcare system, both as to uh, its financing and its delivery. So I wonder if you can dissuade me from pessimism. Well, I don't know if I can dissuade. I don't really know you well enough to know whether you're a glass half empty or a glass <laughs> half full person. So I don't know whether I can succeed. But look, let's think about this in a different way. I've, I've alluded many times to the fact that there's going to be big shortages, and there will be, because the the big baby boom bulge moving through. And if things don't change, there's not going to be enough AIDS to help them. And and the, the book has data on this. Now, think about what the kind of political structure of this is. But let, let, let me give you an, a, another example. Let's say the fight with over kind of pay for retail workers at Walmart. And I'm not picking on Walmart, many other retailers. There, there's a tension between consumers and workers. The workers want to get more money and the consumers want low price products. Uh, and so if the workers get more money, it may raise prices. And so there's not a political coalition there between consumers and workers. In, the, in home health, what we're talking about here, there is a potential consumer coalition. Consumers, the baby boom generation, are going to want AIDS to help them. And they're only going to get those AIDS if the be jobs are better jobs. And they're only going to get quality AIDS if the jobs are better jobs and the AIDS are compensated better and trained better. So this baby boom generation and also younger disabled people have potential allies with the workforce to move us forward on this issue. And as I've said, and we've talked about, even the payers, the Medicaid private insurance companies should be on board with this. So there is a potential. What there has not been is any political leadership on this issue. Uh, the Affordable Care Act initially con did contain a long-term public long-term care program that was poorly designed and, and appropriately quickly abandoned. And Senator Kennedy, Edward Kennedy, Ted Kennedy was an advocate on this issue. But there are no real advocates on this issue. No major political figure has picked this up subsequently. But there's a political coalition to be had, a strong one to be had. And the case, I think, is strong. So I, that's the reason for optimism. The reason for pessimism is we fundamentally have, have, have a muddling through system. We haven't talked about unpaid family caregivers, but the presumption is, well, you can't find someone to help you. Your daughter will do it. That's the muddling through option. The demographics are, gonna, are such that there are going to be fewer daughters available to do it. And I'm not being sexist here. The 
data are that daughters do it far more than sons. But that's the muddling through option, and that's what we've done all along. So I've given you the kind of the reason for optimism. Question is, will people just simply say, we'll keep muddling through? But that's going to lead to big, big shortages. And so we'll see what happens. And that was The Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Osterman for joining us. You can find him at, on Twitter at Osterman Paul, O-S-T-E-R-M-A-N-P-A-U-L. Uh, a reminder that his book is titled Who Will Care for Us? Long-Term Care and Long-Term and the Long-Term uh, Workforce. Much recommended. And Paul, so many thanks for joining us. It was really a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you. We post our show notes at twill.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank? I am at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week.